Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. We will, as we typically do, we will read the whole portion. Uh, as we read, I'll make some comments about what we're reading or what we're going through. And there are some important comments to make because there are some variations as such within this text. But we are in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 onwards. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So we've just left Philip and Peter and John had come to where? In Samaria. And in Samaria, he's been used by God with mighty signs and wonders and miracles and preaching the word. People are coming to believe. And all of these wonderful things are taking place in Samaria. Right then, the Holy Spirit is saying to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian. Now, this is not exactly the, this, where this man is from. It's not exactly where we would think of the modern area of Ethiopia, right? This is rather Northern Sudan, what is today Northern Sudan and Southern Egypt. And so you could, you know, you could refer to this man as an African man rather than an Ethiopian in the modern sense of the word, but the Bible uses the word Ethiopian. And he is an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandeke. And in some of your Bibles, it'll say of Candace as a name. But that's actually, this, this is not actually a name. This is a term that was used to describe the queen or the queen mother in the court as such. And when this, this term was Latinized, it was Latinized as Candace, and the Greeks and the Romans incorrectly referred to it as a name. But it's actually a term. It's like a title, you know, the the CEO or the, the president or whatever, it's a title. It's not actually a name itself. So that's why it says this, this man was an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandeke. And so this is now, this man has come to Jerusalem. And so we continue to read there. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now it's very clear what the background of this man is, right? As to why he came to Jerusalem to worship. He may have been Jewish, but that's very unlikely, right? He may have been a convert or a proselyte to Judaism, and that's possible. Or he may have just been a Gentile God-fearer. And we're going to see very quickly in Acts about Cornelius, who was a Gentile God-fearer. And this man may have been that way, even though when we get to Cornelius, we'll talk about whether he was the first Gentile believer or not and so on. But this man, in no matter what the background as such, he is a worshiper of Yahweh. And he actually came all the way from Africa, traveled by road, by chariot, with whatever number of people and others that he had, all the way to Jerusalem to worship. And he's on his way back home. And he's not just enjoying the scenery. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. 
The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. I don't know what physical shape Philip was in, but it uh, seems pretty incredible that he could just run up and join a chariot. Now, I don't know how fast the chariot was going, but Philip runs up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says, do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers, shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He's reading what we know as Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And that entire chapter of Isaiah 53, we know that as a very powerful chapter describing the Messiah, right? But it's very clear that he doesn't understand what he's reading. And so the eunuchs asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself? or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, again, in some of your translations or versions that you have, you have verse 37 that says, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That particular phrasing is not there in one of the old, some of the oldest manuscripts. And so some of your translations or versions doesn't have verse 37, just picks up in verse 38. But the point that I want to make to you is, regardless of whether that particular phrasing is there or not, it's very clear that as Philip is explaining from the, God, from the prophet Isaiah, this man believes in Jesus, and he responds to the gospel message, and he wants to be baptized. So clearly, there's a contrast here between what we read about Simon the sorcerer and so on. But this man is responding to the gospel message. And then it says, he gave orders, so picking up in verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. This is incredible. This is supernatural travel, right? The spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus 
And this is a place that in the Old Testament, you will see the name Ashdod. It's the same place. It's a Philistine city. It used to be a Philistine city. But Philip, however, appeared at Azotos. This is quite a few miles away, quite a distance away, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What a dramatic story. What an interesting passage. Last week, we considered that even though Simon the sorcerer claimed to believe in Jesus and was even baptized, there wasn't a true transformation in his heart. And so it seems quite intentional on Luke's part, the author, Luke, on Luke's part to juxtapose the story of Simon the sorcerer with this story, this conversion account of this African court official. It's, he's purposely telling us this. Because here is Simon the sorcerer who takes a similar action, who says, I believe, and who says, I want to be baptized, but in fact was not truly transformed. And here is this man, this court official, who makes the same profession of faith, makes a similar profession of faith, and is baptized in water, but of whom we can attest that there was a true transformation. So this morning, you know, as we look at this, Philip, it was Philip who presented Jesus to both men. But only one genuinely believed and was baptized. So it's relevant for us this morning as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, is how Jesus was presented, how the good news, how the gospel message was presented by Philip to both of these men and particularly to this man. The court official was reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, but could not understand the prophecy about Jesus. And he wasn't alone. No one had fully understood what Isaiah 53 meant until Jesus actually fulfilled it. When Jesus fulfilled it, everybody went, oh, that's what this means. It was only those who had witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus who could explain what the prophecy meant. And so the Holy Spirit directs Philip to this man to, where, to bear witness about Jesus. And so Philip uses what is available. This man in the chariot didn't have the whole scripture. He didn't have all of the Old Testament. He didn't have the resources of that kind. The Bible doesn't say that. And it would have been very unlikely for you to have scrolls of the, all of the Old Testament as such. But he has the book of Isaiah. And Philip uses the book of Isaiah to explain the good news, the gospel about Jesus, including his birth, the Christmas story. So this morning, I want to point out a few things about this Christmas story. You see, the Christmas story was a fulfillment of prophecy. When we studied the Gospel of Luke, we looked at the events right before, at, and following the birth of Jesus. And they're glorious events. How God prepared and worked and Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist and how God speaks to Mary and she says, let it be to me as, 
as your servant, you know, let me be, let it be to me as you have said, I am your servant. God speaks to Joseph and then they, they journey, Joseph and Mary journey to Bethlehem. And then the shepherds, you know, the angels proclaim the good news to the shepherds. You know, we read about the, them coming and seeing the baby in the manger. We read about the wise men coming later and worshiping and honoring Jesus. We read about the flight to Egypt and return. We read about all these glorious things that took place before, at, and after, or following the birth of Jesus. And I encourage you, go back and read those scriptures. Go back and read the, the Gospels, Luke and Matthew. And, you know, read the, maybe even this week, right, when you have a few minutes. Just read those scriptures again. Wonderful stories. Listen to the sermons that were done beforehand. And revel, revel, rejoice in this miracle birth of Christ Jesus. Do. Take the opportunity to do that. But this morning... You know, I want to tell you, the prophets, Micah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Samuel, all foretold specific events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And they and other prophets spoke of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the second coming of Jesus. This morning, I'm specifically looking at the prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah, because that's the book that Philip used to explain the gospel. Now, during the Advent season, as we prepare for Christmas, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and so on, each of those Sundays, there has been traditionally a focus on a particular theme. And in most of those celebrations, Advent celebrations, in each one of those Sundays, a specific portion from the book of Isaiah is read aloud. And so I want to highlight those portions to you because on the first Advent Sunday, the, the theme of hope, the reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to, through 5. And it talks about the hope that we have because in the last days, the kingdom of God is established and it will be exalted and all the nations will come in to the, to the, the throne room of God, to the, to the highest, the Lord's temple and so on. And it says there in verse 3, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many people. Peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it's a rallying cry that we have this hope, this eager expectation that when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, oh, these things are going to take place in a glorious way. And that's what we typically would remember on the first Advent Sunday. On the second Advent Sunday, the theme of peace, shalom, wholeness in spirit, in soul, and body, we would read Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 12. And it talks about the peace of God and so on. And, and that very familiar verse, Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Those whose minds are fixed on you, you'll keep them in peace. And we remember this. We rejoice in this. And that, that whole portion continues in that way. And later on in verse 12, it says, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. 
It's not the peace as the world would give. It's not the peace as the world would state. It is a supernatural peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And on the third Advent Sunday, with the theme of joy, we would typically read from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. And it speaks about the desert and the parched land rejoicing and blooming and, you know, the, the glory of the Lord and strengthening feeble hands. And then verse 6, it says, then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Joy, unspeakable, full of glory. Joy of the Lord that is our strength. This is what the Bible is speaking about and Isaiah is pointing to. And then it continues and in that, in that section it, it ends that verse 9 of that section says, no lion will be there nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there but only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Oh, is, doesn't that sound joyful right there? Praise the Lord. But you know, on the fourth Advent Sunday, today, what, what, what is today? Today, the fourth Advent Sunday, it, the theme is of restoration, of being restored and reconciled to God, of being made whole in Him again. And you know, the theme of restoration is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 2 through 7. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you, their harvest and all of these things. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, there, starting in verse 6, we have this very famous or very well-known set of verses. For to us, a child is born. Unto us, to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh, how glorious. I don't know how long they took on that chariot ride, but whatever time was necessary for the Holy Spirit to get all these words across to that man, Philip used that time. From the book of Isaiah, to tell this man about Jesus and to tell him, oh, when Luke describes the angel's proclamation that the, you know, to the shepherds, when the angels come and they proclaim to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, peace on earth, goodwill to all men, or, you know, the, here's what, what has happened. They were declaring, the angels were declaring that all these ancient prophecies had been fulfilled. They were declaring that God's word had come true. You know, when Matthew records the angel's message to Joseph in a dream, when the angel comes to Joseph and says, don't hesitate to take Mary as your wife. I know that you're concerned. I know that you're worried. I know that you're wondering what, what will happen. 
but don't hesitate to take Mary as your wife because, because, the angel says, all this is happening in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says, the virgin, the young woman, will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Even the angels are quoting Isaiah. You know, and they're coming to the, to the people and saying, this is the fulfillment. This is the promise. This is what God said would happen. And it is taking place. Oh, praise God. The Christmas story gives us hope. It gives us peace. It gives us joy. The Christmas story is one of restoration and reconciliation. It is the greatest story ever told that even before the creation of this world, God had prepared for Jesus to come in the flesh and to dwell amongst us. Oof. Philip would have pointed to all these scriptures in Isaiah to explain why Jesus had to be born as a human being so that he could live, die, and rise again. You know, but Philip would also have pointed to all these scriptures to explain that the king of kings who laid aside his glory to be born in a lowly manger. By the way, it's not, it's not even like what you would see, I think there, you know, it's not even like, you know, a very fancy wooden construct. It probably was just like a trough, like a hole in the ground, in the rock, just cut out where the animals would feed. That's where Jesus may have been laid. It wasn't anything fancy, but right there, Jesus, who laid aside, the King of Kings, who laid aside his glory so that he could come into a lowly manger, Philip would have explained to this man that one day, that King of Kings will return with all his glory and he will reign forever. Which means Philip would have explained that just as much as the Christmas story was a fulfillment of prophecy, the Christmas story assures us of the future. The Christmas story is telling us, oh, you're, you're glad, you're rejoicing that Jesus came? Praise God. Go ahead, celebrate, rejoice. But you know what? He's coming again. He's coming again. And you know, if all the prophecies of Jesus' birth particularly those in the book of Isaiah, were fulfilled exactly as they were stated, then all the prophecies of what will happen at the end of time will also be fulfilled exactly as they are stated. Since Jesus came to the earth once, we can be assured that he will come to the earth again. That means that the Christmas story is the royal seal that is placed on that covenant between God and man. God makes that covenant. He made that promise all the way back there and all the prophecies and everything else, thousands of years even before Jesus' birth. He laid out that covenant. He said to Adam and Eve, your seed will crush the head of Satan. And he says to Abraham, your seed will come. 
will bring salvation to the nations. He made that covenant promise a whole long time ago. And he takes that covenant and it's as if that king, that royal authority takes that covenant and puts his seal on it in the Christmas, Christmas story. Jesus is born. He's telling us, I've done it. I've done it. And because of that, because we have that guarantee, as Isaiah 9 declares, because the child is born, because the son is given to us, because of that, one day in the future, we will live in a kingdom of peace, of justice, and of righteousness. If there was no Christmas story, there is no everlasting kingdom. But because of what he did, we can look forward to this kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness. Which means that if the Christmas story is preparing us for the future, it's reminding us of the past, it's preparing us for the future, but it absolutely is necessary and is important for us in the present. Because you see, the Christmas story equips us to evangelize, to tell somebody else the good news of Jesus. That's what the Christmas story does for us in the present. You see, the Philip the evangelist, Philip the evangelist, Philip the missionary, right? one of the modern missionary in that sense of the word, Philip, first one. And there he goes out and he's going, by the way, in, in talking about the fact that this man would have been African, uh, we don't know a whole lot about his background, but he would definitely have been culturally different, racially different, you know, ethnically different from Philip. So Philip has just come from ministering to the Samaritans, but there were at least a little bit, you know, there was something that was at least a little closer to the Jews. Here, this man, probably completely different in all of his circumstances. And Philip is telling him about Jesus without hesitation. And he is evangelizing. He's giving the good news. And so for us today, as we look at what Philip did, there are four important lessons for us to learn from Philip, the pioneering evangelist. And the first one is this. He was willing to give up everything and obey the Lord for the sake of one man. Philip was having a fantastic ministry in Samaria. We just read about this. Signs and wonders and people getting healed and people getting delivered, people coming to believe in Jesus, people getting baptized. I mean, it was dramatic. Would you, if you were having that kind of ministry and impact and thousands of people were responding to you, would you give up, give up all of that to go for one man? If the Holy Spirit said to you, okay, done. I want you to go to this place now and run, catch up with the chariot and talk to this one guy. Would you do it? Would you think that that was worth it? Wouldn't you argue with God at least for a few minutes and say, God, you want me to give up all this? All that we have here, all that we enjoy, all the response. Lord, the people are still responding. They're still coming. 
They're still saying, oh, I want to believe in Jesus. Shouldn't we stay here? What will happen of this work that I have begun if I have to leave? We think too highly of ourselves and of what we do when we don't obey the Lord Jesus. For all the right reasons, isn't it? Love, you can't be serious. Go to the desert road. But Philip was willing to give up everything. He left Samaria. In fact, from what, it, what the description is, he left Samaria for good. Doesn't seem like he went back there. Because it talks of him of going to Ashdod and, Ashdod and then going to Caesarea. And then later on, we're going to see in the book of Acts that he was in Caesarea and he seems to have probably married there and had his daughters there and he's got four daughters who prophesy. But he seems to have then lived in Caesarea. Doesn't even seem like he went back to Samaria. He's willing to give up everything just to go where the Spirit leads. You know, um, not only does he speak to this man in the chariot, he knows that he's believed, he's convinced of that, he baptizes him, and then the Bible says, the Spirit took him away. He couldn't even stick around long enough to enjoy the, the, the fruit of his ministry. This man, you know, it wasn't like he went home with him and said, I, you know, okay, fine, I'll go with you to wherever you're going. I'll see what you do. I'll see the impact that you have on your family and everywhere else. And I'll speak to some of your household too. He didn't do any of that. The spirit took him away. He doesn't even know. Maybe he came to know somehow later on what happened to this man. We don't know what exactly happened to this man. There is church tradition in the second century that this man, became a missionary to the rest of the folks in that area of Africa. We have nothing in the Bible that speaks of that. We can trust that there could be some truth to that. We don't know exactly. But Philip was willing to do all of this and obey the Lord without giving thought to that. He didn't say, Lord, at least show me what will happen. He just said, God, you want to take me? Let me enjoy the ride. Second thing, in terms of Philip as an evangelist, he spoke to this court official. He began to speak to this court official with what the court official had, the book of Isaiah, and what the court official knew. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know what this passage was, but he knew enough about the true and living God to come to Jerusalem to worship him. And so Philip starts, the Bible says he started with that and then explained to him about Jesus. In our postmodern society, people may not consider themselves to be interested in finding the truth. They don't, they don't want to know about Jesus. They, they don't feel there's any need for being in a relationship with a supreme God or that they need to feel guilt for sin or be convicted of sin. They don't feel that there's any need for that. But they, every one of them, every one of the people around you has a real need. They may not acknowledge their spiritual need. They may not acknowledge the need that they have for Jesus, but there is a felt need at least in the, in the present. Maybe they're going through some tough situation at home 
Maybe they're going through a financial difficulty. Maybe they're struggling with something. Maybe they are affected mentally. They're, they're depressed, they're sad, whatever. Maybe they're joyful, but they're not sure of what the future brings. Maybe they're anticipating some sort of a change taking place. They don't know how to handle it. As an evangelist, start with what they have, with what they know, and explain about Jesus. Philip shows them what Jesus, Philip shows this man what Jesus can do, what Jesus means. God had already prepared this man. God was already working in him. Many times we come to people around us and we say, I don't know how to tell them about Jesus. They're going to reject it. They don't feel like, it doesn't seem like they need anything. They're doing pretty well, so they're not going to listen to me. But you know what? If we're led by the Spirit, the Spirit leads us to those that He's already working on, that He's already preparing, that He's already prompting. And you come along and you just share something very simple, very basic. Just tell them about the love of Jesus and things happen. It wasn't you. It wasn't your eloquence. It wasn't your power. It wasn't your ability. It was just the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing you to the very place that he's already at work in and saying, here, I want you to do this. I want you to speak to this one man. And as we do that, as we obey the Lord, that person is transformed. You know, that takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to fear failure. I don't say, oh, what will I do? I'm going to a place that I don't know, to a people that may not receive me, with a message that is foreign to them. How do I do this? How do I do it? Trust the Lord. Be led of the Spirit. Pay attention to what He is saying, because He's at work. The third thing, Philip shared or started to speak to this man based on what he had, but he shared what he knew. He shared Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing less, nothing more. He preached Jesus. Told this man how he could find life in Jesus. What Jesus had done. He went through all these passages in Isaiah to say Jesus, Jesus is everything. When we are speaking to somebody, even as the Lord would lead us, what do we tell them about? Come to Jesus, you mention the name, because he will heal you. Come to Jesus because, you know, you can have new life or abundant life or eternal life or whatever. You can be well. Come to Jesus so that you can join with the body of Christ and you will have good fellowship. Yeah, these things are true. But do we tell them about Jesus for who he is? And do we point people to Jesus to say, are you willing to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, even if those other things don't take place? You know, all around the world and in most other places in the world, following Jesus means you're going to take a big risk. You're going to put your life in danger. You're going to have to forfeit a lot of stuff. So you're not telling them, come to Jesus because of what you will receive. You're saying, come to Jesus because of who he is. Because guess what? You may lose what you, what you already have. And if you lose what you already have in this earth, to gain what you cannot gain by yourself, to gain Jesus, that is life for you. And so we speak a message about Jesus. 
more than 20 years ago when, Jesus, when Joel was still a very young baby, we were living in Toronto and there was this, uh, we were living in a townhouse. We were renting a townhouse at the time. We were there for a few years, just a couple of years. Um, so we would, we would come out of the house in the front there and sort of, there was a path, there was a path just in front of the house and people would be walking by there all the time. When we came out to our front door to the left of us, there was a shopping area and to the right of us, there was this big apartment building. And there was this one man who would keep walking that, that road all the time, going to the store, going to the, back to his house, whatever. And we would see him from time to time and we would just sort of say hello and so on. One day we just engaged in conversation with him. And by the grace of God, the conversation turned to say something about Jesus. And he said, oh, I've heard about Jesus. I have sort of, you know, I know about Jesus. I have a lot of questions. So we said, okay, we're glad to talk to you. He said, I'll, I'll put, I'll write them down. I'll write these things down and I'll share them with you. Well, about a couple of days later, we found in our mailbox about 10 pages, handwritten, right? You know, single spaced, not, not, not 12 point double spaced, single spaced, handwritten questions, statements, all this stuff. And we're like, wow. And so we just said, God, you got to help us. So he came along and he came to our house. We sat there and I sat in the living room and I tried to answer his questions. And we went through questions about creation and about this and about you know, that. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And all this time, Gigi was walking around because Joel was a little baby and she had him on her shoulder and she was you know, feeding him, doing things, taking care of him. And she was walking in and out and so hearing the conversation, but not really part of the conversation sitting there. And after about two hours of all of this, she came by and she said, you know, God so loved you and God so loved the world that he gave his son, that he actually gave Jesus for us. He sent Jesus into this world. And if we just believe in Jesus, he gives us the power to become his children, to have eternal life. And then we don't have to die. He knelt down grabbed Gigi's hand, put it on his head, and he said, I want Jesus. And I sat there and I went, wow. <laughs> you know, we could give all sorts of answers to all sorts of questions. Ultimately, they need Jesus. And we have to be prepared to present Jesus. We spent much time with that man and his family. We got to know his family. They started to come to the church. We spend much time with them, praying for them, talking to them, discipling, doing things. But it was just that. It was just after all those questions, after 10 pages, it was just this very simple message, paraphrase of John 3.16. The Christmas story, the fact that Jesus came. He said, yeah, I want Jesus. And you know, when we share Jesus, when we share what we know, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have you know, some advanced degree, you don't have to have had, you don't have to, you know, you, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you were a Christian for 10 years or 50 years, or, none of that. Just share what you have. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people what he has done. And the fourth thing that I want to mention about Philip the evangelist, he seized the opportunity. When the man said, here's water, what stops us? What stops me from being baptized? Philip said, hey, Sure. I don't think Philip had a change of clothes with him. 
I, you know, he didn't say, well, this is not very convenient. He said, sure, let's do it. And the Bible says that they went in together into the water and filled baptized. We seize the opportunity. We speak to people. We go after the things that the Lord has laid on our hearts. And we say, oh God, help us to evangelize. In both his evangelizing of the Samaritans and this African court official, Philip demonstrated a willingness to love and to minister to those who were not like him. To bridge cultures, we need to respond similarly to the directive of the Lord, to what the Holy Spirit tells us. But before we can obey the Lord to tell someone else about Jesus, our initial and most important response to the Christmas story is that we ourselves would believe in Jesus and be baptized. We respond by believing in Jesus and being baptized. By saying, Lord God, you are my everything. You are my everything. And when we respond to the Lord in that way, we apply this word that we've heard, this, we apply these truths by telling others the good news about Jesus. The Christmas story is not just so that we can have a celebration. The Christmas story is so that we will tell somebody else about Jesus. That we'll tell them what Jesus has done. That we'll tell them about how he came and how he gave his life for us. That we'll tell them that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that this Sunday before Christmas, oh, our hearts are filled with joy. Our hearts are filled with your peace. And our hearts are filled with hope. Hope for this life and what is ahead of us even in the rest of our days on this earth but hope even more so, Lord, for eternity, of being with you for eternity, of being found in you with abundant life. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We pray, Jesus, that this story, this account of this court official and Philip's witness to him, Lord, the use of the book of Isaiah to preach about Jesus and a reminder to us this morning of what a glorious thing you did when you came into this world as a man. Thank you for all of that. Thank you, Lord, that it inspires us and prompts us and propels us, compels us, Lord, to tell somebody else about Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord. Maybe this week, maybe the rest of this month, maybe in the new year, to tell somebody about Jesus. Not to worry about what the response will be, but just to obey you as you tell us to go to one man, one woman, to put aside all our expectations and thoughts and to just obey you to minister to who you lead us to minister to. Thank you, Lord, that through that there will be a fruit 
that lasts. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We pray this together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday morning, we want to remember that we are to die to self and to be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. We want to die to self and to be raised up in new life in Christ Jesus. We want to be born again as a new creation in Christ Jesus. New life in Christ. And every Sunday morning, we want to receive the blessings of God. We want to declare the, the promises, the power, the presence of the Lord and say, oh God, thank you that you bless us. So let's stand together this, this morning. I want to speak this word of blessing over you. Each morning, each Sunday morning to say, from the word, oh, may you be blessed. May you find joy. And this morning, I want to speak a word of blessing over you from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, would be read earlier. And as I speak this word of blessing, I pray that you will receive this and that it will charge you, that it will encourage you, that it will, oh, give you life. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. May you fully know in your heart the child who is born. May you gladly receive in your life the son who is given. May you willingly serve in the government that is on his shoulders. And may you daily experience him as your wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We want to wish you a wonderfully blessed, refreshing, and merry Christmas. No matter whether you're with family or you're by yourself, remember that the Lord is with you. And he will make his face to shine upon you. May you experience abundant peace and joy. Merry Christmas. God bless you. Go in peace.